0: Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally.
1: Hello, Dan Hasler here with you, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Habits of Leadership Podcast. Before we kick off the show with our very special guest, Dan Pink, I just wanted to let you know that the registration window for our semester two cohort of the Habits of Leadership program closes this Friday, the 2nd of August. So if you're interested in uh, what the program's all about, and maybe you're interested in being involved in our Sydney workshops, or perhaps want to join us in our online program, if you head over to thehabitsofleadership.com, you can find out all the information there. But as I said, we have a very special guest today. Uh, one of my favorite authors is Dan Pink. He's authored books like Drive and When, as well as books like To Sell is Human. And I'm a massive fan of all his um, writing. It's challenged me to think differently over the years, and it's always presented in a really informative and, I think importantly, an entertaining way. So when I was thinking of who we'd like to get on here on the Habits of Leadership podcast and who'd like to have a chat, I thought who better if he, if he can spare us some time, who better to get on than Dan Pink. So Dan, thank you so much for joining me. It really is um, a treat. They, they say you you should never meet your heroes. So I feel like I'm playing it a little bit safe today by meeting you online. <laughs> <laughs> so if you yeah, do disappoint, yeah, well, you know, I, yeah, it I, won't it it, won't be that it, big a fall. It's
0: kind of you to, it, it's kind of you to say that, but I, I guarantee I will disappoint you.
1: <laughs> well, it's, um, I, I, I'm, I'm interested, um, you know, first and foremost, I mean, you've written six books, all of them um, I've found particularly um, not only enjoyable, not only entertaining, but really, really thought-provoking. Um, but before you became an author, am I right in saying that you were um, a speechwriter?
0: I was a long, 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 long time ago. I worked as a political speechwriter. I, I studied law, which in the U.S. is a graduate degree. Studied law, and then decided not to practice law, and ended up working in politics, and quickly thereafter ended up becoming a speechwriter for reasons that still elude me. <laughs> uh, I did that, and then uh, for for a while, and finally got sick of it and decided to do my own thing.
1: Yeah, you were a speechwriter at the White House, weren't you? Presumably, um, before they realized they don't need speechwriters, you just <laughs> jump onto Twitter. Is that right? <laughs>
0: Uh yeah that was yeah that was a, I mean it's funny you say that because it, because even though it was say 20 years ago which is not a huge huge amount of time
1: no.
0: uh it's it's an apocalyptic difference in um what's happened in politics Absolutely. i mean it just it, it's just incredible it's just incredible for instance i don't know if um president trump has any speechwriters. well truly
1: <laughs> truly he surely not <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about President Trump. Um, no. no, thankfully. I'm, thankfully, no. Um, I wanted to um, talk to you really about the, the, some of the thinking that you cover um, in, in two of your books in particular. Uh, one book uh, being Drive and, and the other being your latest book, When. And I thought if we could just um, yeah step back in time a little bit and, and talk a little bit about um, Drive. that. Your TED talk, which um, explores some of that um, the content within Drive, um, has been viewed over twenty million times, and your RSA animation, which um, covers the, some of the thinking in that book, has been uh, well seen over fourteen million times. I'm curious as to what you think you uncovered in that um, in that work that compelled so many people to to listen what what's what's i mean i know it's called the surprising truth about what motivates you but what surprised people to that extent Uh,
0: i i'm not i'm not sure precisely i think that part of it is that people had an intuition that the way companies were structured the way that they were trying to motivate people was off and but that intuition didn't have any evidence behind it and didn't have a way to articulate it. And so this might have simply supplied uh, some kind of architectural scaffolding to people's gut feelings.
1: Mm. And and you you used, um, I mean, you refer a lot to the work of Ryan D.C. in the self determination theory. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit around the self-determination theory and how that that you then use that to inform your further thinking in, in oh life.
0: yeah absolutely so, so self-determination theory is is a movement within psych, social psychology led as exactly as you say by Edward DC and Richard Ryan uh, started in the 1970s uh, that took a, a, a very different approach uh, it's based on some hypotheses about human behavior that were different from the reigning approach in psychology up to that moment. Uh, I recall taking psychology as an undergraduate in the, you know, 1982, and a lot of what we learned, a lot of the reigning view of psychology, was built around not all of it, but it was built around experiments with rats and mazes and things like that. I'm mm-hmm. oversimplifying of course a bit, but you know, uh, B.F. Skinner and operant conditioning and those were our notions of of motivation and richard ryan and and adisi did a took, took a different approach saying wait a second maybe human beings have different motivators maybe human beings um are are not merely behaving all the time as rats and mazes mm. they are they have other sorts of drives and other reasons for doing things and instead of simply asserting that instead of announcing a philosophy of human behavior, philosophy of the human condition, which is what sort of what humanistic psychologists like Abraham Maslow did two decades prior. They said, well, we're going to treat this like scientists. We're going to do some experiments. And they have done just a massive number of studies launching an entire movement that, that, that says it doesn't say human beings don't respond to rewards and punishments, that's not. That's fundamentally false. What it says is that human beings respond to more than simply contingent rewards and punishments, that they have this this innate need to be self-determined, to guide their own lives, to have sovereignty over what they do and how they do it. And if you mix that with some other research in psychology over the last 30 years, it gives you, I think, a very different recipe for... How do you build schools? How do you build organizations? How do you even construct your own life in a way that is both productive and fulfilling? That is productive in part because it's fulfilling. Hmm. And so I, you know, so so in my view, DC and Ryan are, I, I mean, I think that that in the field of psychology they are they are are historic figures for helping turn the ship around.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and in. The, the, the pillars of self-determination theory, you know, of um, autonomy, competence, and uh, relatedness, you kind of tweaked the language a little bit in, in Drive and spoke about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I wonder if you could just in, in part, you know, talk a little bit about each of those um, pillars yeah, and, yeah. And, and the importance so, so, of them.
0: Yeah. So I thought that, you know, again, taking the totality of the academic work that is out there and also looking at, so so, if you look at this book, Drive, part of it is, a big part of it is based on academic research and, and some of it's based on, re, you know, reporting in my own analysis about what's going on there. And I yeah. thought that self-determination theory, which, you know, I write about in, in the book, I, I went to, you know, there's within, in that book, I, I mean, I, you know, I talk about going to Rochester, uh, New York, uh, both of them are at the University of Rochester and talking to them and interviewing them and telling their stories. and. Uh, But but I also felt like there was something even bigger going on here in the um, The organizational approach to the organizational approach to motivation now uh, other uh, Scholars have looked at that. So you have uh, You know Hertzberg had this kind of hygienic theory of motivation where or basically saying that you have to meet the hygienic needs of people with money and so forth And then you can move to other things Doug McGregor yeah, this is in the 1960s. Talked about theory X and theory Y, and so you had, you know, you had a, a um, there, there were currents going in this direction. I don't think they were fully realized until maybe 15, 20 years ago when they all they all came together. So I so I took self determination theory, but there's also other research in things like in simply um, um, you, you know D.C. And Ryan talk about self determination talks about competence. I, I felt like there was something else going on about People's desire—not merely for competence, but for something higher than that, for 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 mastery, for yeah. progress, for yeah. getting better at
1: this—to strive, yeah. Um, yeah,
0: right, right, right. And 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 this this idea—I mean, it's a it's a little bit wonky—but this idea of um, mastery as an asymptote, that is something that you could aspire to but never fully reach, which yeah. I think is very different from competence. And if you if you weave in the some of the stuff uh, that Carol Dweck at Stanford has done on mindsets, um, which has now become a huge deal at the time I wrote about it it was less of a huge deal. Um, That plays a a role in there too. And then um, I I thought, especially from an organizational perspective that the sense of purpose as a motivator was extraordinarily important. Mm. And there's some much, much newer research showing in a I, at some level, in a much more mechanistic way, that purpose can be a motivator. Now, one of the things in that in that long ago book, drive, which is you know ten years old now, yep. is that when I wrote about purpose, I actually don't feel like I got it right. Um, I've, I've since sort of changed my view a little bit on especially on purpose, this idea that purpose is not one thing, but it's two things. There are two different kinds of purpose, both of which are powerful motivators, but that are actually operate somewhat differently. Uh, and so so what I was trying to do was use the existing academic research, stand on the shoulders of these academic giants, uh, but also uh, take my own observations as a journalist, as a writer, as an analyst and say, how can we put this all together and come up with a way that organizations can motivate employees that is more effective? Mm. It also happens to be more human. Yep. but it's more effective.
1: Yeah. So you said you changed your mind on on the the way you frame purpose and then you spoke about it in on on two levels. What 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 do you mean by that? What 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 are what's going yeah, on so, there? So so
0: so so the way I th- the way I think about it now is what I what I've started calling capital P purpose and small p purpose. So purpose with a capital letter, purpose with a small letter. And in, and originally I I was focused very much on purpose with a capital P. Mm. So, be, so it would be so by that I mean like making a big outward difference in the world. Um, so, you know, are you addressing the climate crisis? Are you feeding the hungry? Are you doing something big, transcendent, and world-changing that is leaving an imprint on the society at some level? Mm. Uh, and and that is a motivator. There's no question about that. I, what, what I missed, I think, is that it's very hard in organizations or in our individual work, to accomplish most days of the week, yep. um, it's it's a little daunting. Uh, it's Ch- I, to I, I change
1: the world with, every day, <laughs> right? That,
0: yeah. Right, right. And it's, it's daunting. It's a little exhausting. It's yeah. a big motivator. There's yep. no question about that. Um, but I don't think it's the only kind of purpose motivator. And and looking at some other research. Um, I think there's a second motivator, which we can think of as purpose with a small P mm. uh, and that's simply making a contribution. So it's motivating. If, if you and I are working together in an insurance company mm. and um, or, no, or you, you, we're working in an insurance company and you're trying to get some project out the door and I take some time and help you get that project out the door. And you say, Hey, Dan, other Dan, that was really great. That was a huge help. Um, we, you know, I managed to get this thing done because of you. That's a motivator. That's a sense of purpose. You are contributing. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and that's something that people, That that's something that's much more at people's fingertips. That's something that people can access many kinds of days. And there's some really, really interesting research about how, about that as a motivator. There's a great study. I love it out of out of Harvard Business School Showing that if you think about a typical cafeteria Yeah, this is happened to be a cafeteria in Boston and in, in the eastern part of the United States yep. it's a cafeteria and you, you you take your tray through the cafeteria and you pluck food off of the display case or whatever and maybe some people um, Serve you food and whatever but but the people cooking the food are invisible to you. They're in the back You don't see them and so what these researchers did is they hooked up an iPad that allowed the, the customers to see the cooks, the cooks to see the customers in various kinds of conditions. And it turned out that when the cooks could see the customers, the quality of the food improved. Mm. Now that's purpose with a small P. So cause what you're talking about there with those cooks are, they're not saying, Oh my gosh, I'm feeding the destitute. No, this is a cafeteria in, in downtown Boston serving, you know, middle-class and upper middle-class people. Um, but it was simply that knowing their work made a contribution, that it had an impact even on, on somebody's world rather than on the world, yeah, right. to be a, a, a big motivator. And I, I think in some cases, I, I certainly missed that in the first go around. I've tried to redeem myself since then.
1: The other pillar that you make um, a lot of um, reference to is that of, of autonomy, and you talk yeah. about um, some organisations, and one, despite my very broad English accent, I actually live in Australia. And uh, you you make a, a fair reference to uh, an Australian company, Atlassian, who are now going yeah. gang, gangbusters around the world, and, oh, and the owners, absolutely. yeah, the owners are buying up pretty much all of Sydney. Um, and and yeah. you um, you you were actually speaking or. Uh, or, or writing around you know the autonomy that um is is present there i'm really interested in how you encourage leaders uh wherever you find them to allow if that's even the right word but allow more autonomy for their for their team How, how does that play out
0: uh it depends on the organization depends on their culture depends on the individuals involved uh one of the things again as i think about having been writing about this stuff for you know a decent amount of time now i think one thing that's helpful to me is 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 how have i changed how how and where have i changed my view mm. and so you know i mentioned i mentioned purpose uh, i have become a much basically just like seeing organizations in action over the last you know 15 years or so has made me a much fiercer believer in small wins as opposed to big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Um, and and I think that that is the secret in, in many cases. So and and you see it in the trajectory in some cases of the, the the approach to autonomy. So let's go back in time, It's ten years ago, and in this book that we're talking about, I wrote about Google, and Google had twenty percent time. People can spend twenty percent of their time working on whatever they want. It was a glorious moment of autonomous work. Well it turned out that 10 years later, it actually was pretty good but didn't work quite as well as people expected. Um, And that it was a little bit too much. Um, And so, but it wasn't as if that was the whole idea was scrapped, it's that what happened is that gave birth to a range of other kind of autonomous practices, one of them fostered by Atlassian, which is uh, what what they now call ship it days. Which is instead of 20% of your time, four days, a, 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 one day a quarter, four days a year, people have this intense, undiluted autonomy to do whatever they want. You see it in other kinds of practices too, where companies are doing, you know, take a couple of hours a week or have a genius hour, one hour a week. Mm. And so the trajectory of it is, is that, yeah, autonomy is, and this is built very much on self determination theory. Uh, uh, human beings, by their very nature, want to have a sense of self direction, want to have sovereignty over what they do and how they do it. They are inherently autonomous creatures. I, I think that is a true analysis of the human condition. Um, how that's expressed within organizations is tricky mm-hmm. because it doesn't always, you know, there are there, there, there conf- often conflicting imperatives here. But the way that it's been reconciled so far is not to eliminate autonomy, but actually to recast it in a smaller version. And so what's happened is the smaller versions are spreading like crazy all over the place. Yep. Um, and, and so, uh, so, so the, the point is to answer your question more directly, it's like, let's, I think that the way for leaders to do this is to, is to start small. Uh, don't, ha- don't, don't start, say, with 20% time. Mm. Start with a genius hour once a week. Yep. start with a ship it day a la Atlassian once every half year yep. start small see how it works iterate yep. do it again reiterate do it again you know yep. and I, I really think that that's the best lesson for 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 leaders and, and and forgive me for going on and on about this but again as I think through this you know again as I think about to the extent I've and I have changed my thinking on in, in, in some in some ways to me I even think about the role of a leader, the role of a manager, somewhat different than I did, say, 10 years ago. Uh, I think there I thought that – what I think right now for – there I thought leaders should be a little bit more assertive and directive and assured. Now my, my view is that the best leaders actually operate to some extent like scientists. And what do scientists do? Scientists have hypotheses, mm. and they test the hypotheses. So you can have a hypothesis as a as a leader saying, if I if, if if people have an hour a week to go somewhere else and think about a better way to run this place, a genius hour, that's going to have some kind of effect. And so what you do is you test it, you try the experiment, yeah. and if it works, you keep doing it and refine it. If it doesn't work, you say, hmm, what went wrong? And so leaders not having leaders. I think it's so volatile today that, that leaders can't say I know all the answers. What they have to do is they say I'm well informed, I have educated guesses about what's going to work but instead of putting all, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here, instead of putting all my chips on one particular approach, I'm going to actually be more like a scientist and actually have a hypothesis that this is going to work and then I'm going to go test the hypothesis.
1: Yeah, and and that um, is in a, is some way quite a nice little segue into the, the fast forward 10 years to your latest book in terms of well how do we find the time <laughs> to do to do these yeah. kinds of things and um you know i actually um so as i said we're fast forwarding now we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh drive the book you wrote uh, a decade ago your latest book is called when the scientific secrets of perfect timing and i think um i've never met a leader or in fact, I've, I'm very rarely meeting anyone these days who seems to have loads of time on their hands. Um, so it's a, it seems to be an omnipresent um, challenge. Um, and yet, you write more about how we should think about time as as you allude to in the the, um, the the title. It's a it's a science. Make let's make some smart decisions on how we use our time. And I was just interested to hear. Um, because you've, you, you've actually spent a fair, fair amount of your time in that book looking at um, education. And many of the people who will be listening to this podcast are actually in education. And mm-hmm. I was curious, just for the last part of our chat, if we could sort of talk about what were some of the, the key things that you found when you looked at the science of time and how we spend our days and how that can apply in schools?
0: Sure. Uh, it is an interesting segue because from, from the idea of leaders as scientists to um, this idea that there is a scientific foundation to some of the decisions we make in, in organizations and in schools in particular, happy to talk about the, the school part too. Uh, the, the big idea here is that you you, know, you and I are making, and everybody are making all kinds of timing decisions throughout our lives. So everything from when should you and I be having this conversation to when should I be, you know, as a writer, when should I be doing my writing, to when should I take a break, when should I go to the gym, but even more episodically, um, when should I start a project, when should I abandon a project that's not working, uh, how do uh, um, uh, how, how do I synchronize in time with other people, and when we make those kinds of decisions, we're, we're making them pretty much based on intuition and guesswork, yep. or even by default settings, and that's the wrong way to do it. Uh, it turns out that there's this incredible body of research that gives us evidence that can form the foundation of these decisions about when to do things, both at the unit of a day, but even more broadly and episodically on how beginnings affect us, how midpoints affect us, how endings affect us. Yeah. And so, and, and the challenge of this research compared to, say, the drive research what, is that this research was all over the place. This was in you know 20 something different fields from mm. psychology to economics to anthropology to cognitive science to microbiology to chronobiology to anesthesiology um and so what i tried to do there was say let's 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 make our decisions about timing in evidence-based ways now as for how it affects schools a huge huge implications uh, let me give you i mean there's so many but i'll give you
1: what about the, t- the test scores in denmark for example
0: Bingo, exactly. That's where I was going. And so what you, what you see is the, the the main idea here in the research, which is very very clear is that our cognitive abilities don't remain static over the course of the day. When I say our, I don't mean people named Dan. I mean people
1: Cuz I was do. Human being. Cuz I was do. We're yeah, on yeah. it. We're yeah, we're 100% sure. all the time, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. We are representative of the entire planet, you and I. And so cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. That's a really important point. I wish I had learned that many, many years ago. Our cognitive abilities change over the course of a day. Uh, They change in predictable ways, typically. They change in pretty significant ways, um, which is exactly what you were getting at. So there's a really great piece of research uh, looking at in Denmark, in the Denmark uh, school system. Denmark students take standardized tests, as they do in most jurisdictions around the world. Uh, In Denmark, students take these standardized tests on computers, but the typical Danish school has more students than computers, so everybody can't take the test at the same time. Mm. So the students on test day are randomly assigned to take the test at different times of the day. This is like, this is a natural experiment, right? You have a large sample, 2 million people in this case, 2 million school kids in this case, randomly assigned to different conditions of test taking. It's incredible. And so Francesca Gino, who's at Harvard here in the US, and then two Danish researchers looked at these scores of these 2 million Danish test takers and found that uh, there were big differences in when students took the test, that taking the test in the afternoon versus the morning was equivalent to missing two weeks of school. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a big deal. So what that, so what to me, what that says is, Oh wow. How, how effective are these standardized tests as policymaking tools when there's such variance based on something like whether a kid took the test at 10 AM or 2 PM. And then I think even more alarming is should we be making decisions about individual students based on their test scores? When if that student who took the test at 2 PM had been randomly assigned to take the test at 10 AM, she would have scored She might have scored higher. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and you see this again, and, 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 you know, you, you see this also in, I think it's a really important study. It hasn't gotten enough notice in uh, uh, Nolan Pope at the university of Chicago looked at, Two, again, just coincidentally, 2 million uh, anonymized profiles of students, elementary school students in the uh, Los Angeles school district. And what he found is that students who had math in the morning learn more math. Mm. Uh, they did better on standardized tests. They had better grades. Yep. And so when we think about, you know, in a school or, or anything, we, we think about school leaders Typically, understandably, think about scheduling as a logistical issue. Yep. Can I get the right bodies in the right room with the right instructor at the right time? Yep. And it is a logistical issue, yep. but it's more than that. It's a pedagogical issue. Mm-hmm. And so, by you know, a student who, if you believe the L.A. Unified School District data, and and it's it's good research and it's a extraordinarily large uh, and representative sample, that having a student take math at 2.30 p.m. puts that student at a disadvantage compared to the kid who is taking math at 9 a.m. And the other thing that we see, in the, especially in the United States, it, in some of these time-based differences in performance, it, and you see this in a whole range of the research in education and timing, is that the downdraft, the, 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 the harm of bad timing Hits low-income kids much harder, and the re- and remedying it helps low-income kids much more. That is, the higher-income kids, the kids from more privileged backgrounds, they're a little bit less susceptible yeah. to some of these diurnal things. Whereas the, that 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 having a low-income kid take math. Imagine a low income second grader yep. taking math at 3pm. Yep. That's a really bad idea. Yep. That's, a, that's really, I think it's fundamentally unfair. We shouldn't be doing that.
1: Mm. And so after, um, after class and after after the morning sessions, you also um, advocate that we need to have a little more recess. For um for the, the kids as well. Right?
0: I mean, here's the thing. You know, it's like I'll tell you on that one. Uh, you know, so so I wrote this book and I was I I wanted to write a little bit about breaks. So I looked at the research on looked at the research on breaks. Um, and I was gonna, you know, I have a chapter on the day, the hidden pattern of the day. And I said, okay, what I'll do is I'll say, hey, you know, probably let me just look at the research on breaks. It's probably pretty straightforward. I'll write a page or two in that chapter. And I started looking at the research on breaks, and it was it blew me away, to the point where I have an entire separate chapter on breaks. And, um, and, and what, we, what what I've, I've noticed, and we can expand beyond the, the school building, is that we have, when I say, I, I think this is much more of a kind of a, um, I, I think there's some, some national differences here in our approach to it, but if you look at an Australia or a UK or a US or even many of the Asian countries, we have dramatically, Undersold the importance of breaks. Um, breaks matter way more than we realize. If you look at the research, uh, we have to start thinking about breaks in the day as part of our performance, not a deviation from our performance. We tend in the in this kind of puritanical Anglo-Saxon-rooted worlds that you and I live in. This, we have this very puritanical view of things that. The best way to get stuff done, the most effective way to get stuff done, the most morally virtuous way to get stuff done <laughs> is to power through. Yeah. And that breaks are for wimps, breaks are for amateurs. Yeah. And what the research tells us is that is not true. Mm. High performers take breaks. Uh, this is something I got completely wrong in my own life. I'd always believed that amateurs took breaks and professionals didn't. It's the exact opposite. Professionals take breaks amateurs don't take breaks and when you look at the constituent when you look at what kind of breaks are effective You see that what we know is that breaks with other people are more effective than breaks on our own breaks outside are more effective than breaks inside we know that breaks when you're moving are better than breaks that are stationary We know that uh, being fully detached from your work is more important than being semi-detached from it and when we look at what we know about breaks it basically forms, I think, an airtight case for recess. Um, that is, that the if you look at the design principles underneath what that we that scientists know about effective breaks, it sounds like recess outside with other people yeah. moving around, fully detached. Yeah. And 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 what you have, especially in the states, because of this, I think, because of the grip of standardized testing and because of this innate Puritanism, is that you have school districts here in the states cutting out recess. Uh, when in fact they should be adding it yep. um, and there's an interesting research in some low-income school districts in texas showing that actually adding recess can boost test scores
1: and and it's not i mean it's not just all about performance i mean i'm hearing a lot there which would boost well-being it would boost all manner of totally. sense of yeah. belonging Absol- yeah
0: ab- totally absolutely yeah I, I agree with you completely dan it boosts social and emotional learning and boost the sense of belonging uh physical wellness but for me it's like just like I I think about how do you make winning arguments and I think if you argue for um recess as an important facet of socio-emotional development uh, I I don't think that's a I don't think that's a winning argument in most school districts Mm. Um, I think that you want to go in I think you want to go with a much more hard-headed argument It's like, Would
1: what's you? the return on investment, right? <laughs> when you go into yeah, the corporate world, yeah, yeah. what's no, the bottom I'm, line? No,
0: I'm not, yeah, and I'm, and I'm showing my, car, I'm showing my, I'm being, I'm showing my, I'm revealing the strategy here. Mm. I mean, it is important for socio-emotional uh, learning. There's no question about that. It is important for their physical capabilities, uh, but it also has other kinds of benefits as well. And, and so, there's a very, you know, a lot of times, like like for recess, we make this kind of soft-hearted case for recess i think that soft-hearted case is right um but i think there's a hard-headed case that's more persuasive to the yeah. people who are decision makers
1: yeah. then we've we've Pretty much come to the end of our, our time here. I was just wanted to l- ask one last question, if I may, and that is, you know, you've sure. written, you've been writing for a, a long time. Six really compelling books, which have made people kind of, and I've seen it happen: stop as they're reading, put the book down, and go, oh, you know, and and start a whole conversation on that. I'm wondering if there's one thing that stopped you in your tracks while you were researching the books and really made you kind of, you know, hit reset.
0: Well, you know, that's a great question. I, there, there are a lot of things. I don't think there's a single thing, you know, and I, I try to, you know, that's in some ways what I'm hoping for in myself, because if it happens with me, then it'll happen with readers. Mm. So if I start looking at a body of research and motivation and saying, holy crap, like, look at this, what this science is telling us, we're really doing things wrong. Uh, you know, I have that moment and I say, oh, let me bring that to readers. Or if you say, wait a second, I don't need to be making my timing decisions in this very sloppy way. I can be making them based on research and evidence. You know, that's sort of that jolts me upright. And I say, let me bring that to let me bring that to let, let me bring that to readers. Yeah. And so what I, so 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 I'm, you know, I, I think in some ways my job is to try to try to find stuff out, have that feeling of saying, whoa, wait a second. I never knew that. And then but that's only the beginning. And then it's say, Hey, what can I do to share that with other people?
1: Yeah, so if it's in your book, it made you sit up, basically. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Dan, um I'm I know you've got hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, so I don't know if you want any more. And you've got th- hundreds of thousands of people who subscribe to your uh, newsletter every every um, every month or so. But if people listening, I mean, look, if they're still listening at this point, I'm guessing they've got a lot out of this conversation. So if people do want to connect with you and find more um, out about your work and your books, what, what would be the best place to head to?
0: I uh, just go to my website, which is uh, Dan Pink, D A N P I N K dot com danpimk.com there's a bunch of free resources and um a newsletter that has all kinds of groovy stuff and it's all free
1: it's all free and it's all there we'll put a link to that in the show notes but um just thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your schedule to to chat to us
0: oh my pleasure dan thanks for having it uh, thanks for having me thanks
1: for a great conversation thank you very much cheers and i can assure you it wasn't a disappointment cheers mate <laughs> If you found that conversation interesting, make sure you head over to the links in the show notes there and get your hands on uh, all the resources that's available at Dan's site. You might also be interested in checking out episode two in which I spoke with Carol Dweck about her theory of mindset. You'll remember that Dan alluded to that um, in our conversation there. And of course, if you found it useful, if you found it worthwhile, then there's a fair chance somebody you know, would also find it useful and worthwhile. So please, please, please like this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, comment on this podcast and share it as far and as wide as you possibly can. And if you have any questions for upcoming shows, then again, head over to the Habits of Leadership website, which is habitsofleadership.com and just click on on the podcast page there but until next time thank you so much for listening take care and take it easy